everybody, Jordan Skinner here with another awesome episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to the construction industry where I interview amazing guests from within the industry that share their experience, their wisdom, and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or grow within your business. So no matter where you are in the industry, there's always something valuable to learn from our guests and their stories. Now, this week, I'm chatting with Arthur Saltis from Pritchard Francis. Now, that's about the sixth take I've had to do to get that name right. But I'm chatting with Arthur today about his journey into the construction industry. I think he was always destined to be in there. He was reading architectural journals at five years old. And as I say in the podcast, there was no way in hell I think I could concentrate enough to actually get through one of those journals now at nearly 32. But Arthur came to Pritchard Francis pretty much straight out of uni, worked for the company for a while, left and then came back and is now CEO. And the company has grown significantly over the years to well over 100 staff. And he has a really unique perspective about onboarding and offboarding employees. And I think it's really important for people to have a listen to because it's, it's a unique perspective. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. G'day, Arthur. Thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. I'm looking forward to having a chat with you. Thanks, Jordan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So for everybody that doesn't know you yet, could you just tell us who you are and what it is that you do? Sure. Yeah. So my name's Arthur Saltis. I'm from Perth and I run a consulting engineering practice, Pritchard Francis, that was established in Perth about 45 years ago. Yeah. So where do you guys specialize? What is it that you guys do? Tell us a little bit more about the company. Well, it's evolved a lot over the years. Started as a small partnership, primarily doing small residential, a bit of light commercial and so forth. But yeah, over the years, the firm's evolved a lot. We're now across many sectors, defence, land development, property, transport, mining. It's about eight or ten sectors that we work in. And you've grown quite a bit from when it first began. In our last conversation, you said you're up over the 100 mark now and it was pretty small when you first got involved. Yeah, five or six people when I first got exposed to Pritchard Francis. And yeah, now we're well over 100. 115 yeah. or something. So we've got a few offices in other regional areas, Broome, Darwin, Albany as well. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How was it that you came into construction? Did you have family in construction that exposed you to the industry? How did that come about? Yeah, not directly, but I remember as a kid going with my mum to visit an old auntie and one of her sons used to order a architectural journal magazine. And while my mum was catching up with my auntie, I would have been five or six years old. To be honest, it was probably before I went to school. I used to just sit there and read these architectural journals and I used to find them quite interesting. At five? Yeah. And then coincidentally, this auntie had a brother. So he's my great uncle, who was quite a well-known engineer in Perth. He was an academic, a PhD academic at UWA, who unfortunately died relatively young. He was in his 40s, highly regarded. And yeah, a memorial lecture was actually established in his honour in the late 60s, around the time I was born, actually. So I never met this guy. His name was Dr. George Hondras. And I've been on that committee now for a number of years, managing that memorial lecture to make sure that it continues. Hmm. And it was established around the time of his death. And yeah, growing up, you know, the family used to speak very highly of him and explain how revered he was in the industry. So I suppose a couple of those things sort of led to me understanding that engineering was a possibility for me. Yeah. So were the things that he worked on pointed out to you as you were growing up? Because I mean, that's one of the rare things about our industry that we can look back in 15 or 20 years time and say, we built that or I engineered that or whatever it was. Yeah, I don't understand exactly what role he had, but the, the major bridge 
in Perth that links south of the river to north of the river, the Narrows Bridge, he did have some technical involvement in. It was quite a unique form of construction at the time. It was externally pre-stressed. And being an academic, he had a lot of influence on a lot of engineers that came through the system at UWA. He lectured a lot of engineers that ended up being quite successful in Perth and nationally and internationally. And I've met many of those people that have spoken extremely highly of him. Hmm. So, yeah, there's a bit of family history there, but yeah. So was it a straight line for you, basically getting to where you are now in terms of you read the architectural books at five, which <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'd struggle to focus on those now at nearly 32. <laughs> but from that point on, was it like, right, that's what we're doing? Or did you venture off into other things and then come back to construction or was it? No, just on that, that is a bit of an insight into me as, and my character. I've been told by many family that I was never a child. I was born an adult, so yeah. maybe you've picked up something there. Yeah. No, look, I was good at maths and physics at school, and once I recognised engineering as an option, it was a relatively easy decision for me. Mm-hmm. And then I was lucky enough to get a break with Pritchard Francis as a student. I actually worked with them as a student while I was still studying, so that led me to get a graduate position with them when I graduated. Yeah. So, and then you went off to work for some other bigger companies in between, you know, originally working for Pritchard Francis and then coming back. What was it that made you move? Was it just you wanted to learn more? Yeah, I think the firm was relatively small back then. As I said, it was five or six people and we we're doing relatively small work. And I was answerable to reporting to basically the three directors at the time. So the stepping stones for me career-wise were too large. I didn't see manageable easy stepping stones and I sort of felt like I was always going to be the young graduate in the office basically so after a few years getting a very good grounding by the way in the fundamentals of engineering because all of the directors at that time were exceptional engineers I decided to move and it was partly with the support of Bob Pritchard and Lionel Francis and David Royal who were the directors at the time and I went and worked for one of the largest consulting practices in Perth at that time And that really opened my eyes up to not only my own ability, because I was able to compare myself to others, but also got exposed to some of the largest architectural firms in Perth and undertook some quite exciting work. And that really gave me an adrenaline boost, I suppose, and really progressed my career. Yeah. So what was it that eventually made you come back to Pritchard Francis? What size was the company when you came back? Not dissimilar to when I left. They may have grown by one or two, but David Royal had left the business while I was away and Bob and Lionel, the two founding partners, were looking for a succession plan, I suppose. So they asked me through a mutual friend if I'd be interested in coming back. I had no intentions of returning when I first left, but the opportunity seemed exciting to me at the time. Yeah. So that opportunity, was it to become managing director? Was that the carrot that lured you back? There was a discussion around ownership. I did have ambitions then to become an owner of a business. Mm-hmm. So that was quite an attractive option for me. Having worked with both of the two founding partners previously as well, I knew them very well. And for me, the trustworthiness and the integrity of those two gentlemen was important for me. My old man used to say, it's very easy to get into bed with someone, very hard to get out of bed. (laughs) So that was always embedded in my mind. If I was going to take the leap of faith, it had to be with people that I could trust. Yeah. And the reason I ask that question is, I mean, from the outside looking in, it almost seems like a backward step to go from a firm of five or six or seven people to a real massive firm to then come back again. So I was just curious to know why exactly that was, but it definitely makes sense. Yeah, I think I felt 
I could have a big piece in a small pie rather than a very small piece in a big pie, and I preferred that primarily around the influence I could have. Much larger impact. I could have more influence in a small practice and do something with it. Yeah. So from the time that you came back, you said it was still roughly at about five or six staff. What are some of the different stages that the company's actually been through since then to get to where it is today? Yeah, a lot. We're nothing like what we were 25 years ago. I think fundamentally ownership's been the largest one and the most challenging, to be honest. It was established originally as a partnership. I came in, as did David Roll before me, and it was effectively still a partnership. And then eventually we started to grow numbers to around 25 or 30 people. And by then a a younger gentleman by the name of Andrew Bailey, who's still with us as COO now, joined the firm. And Andrew and I both had ownership in the business then. We started to recognise that we needed to have some more people around us taking responsibility for things because we couldn't really see it topping out, to be honest. We still saw growth potential in the business. So we started to develop some younger people into owners of the business and we got it to a point where there was half a dozen or so of us that all had ownership, still fairly tightly held ownership, but reasonable percentages amongst all of us. And that got us to a certain point. And then we started to recognise that that model, again, wasn't necessarily working for us in the long term. It wasn't necessarily scalable. But we had certainly been the right model to get us to where we were at that stage. So now we've transitioned again and we're very much an employee-owned company. So there's a large percentage of people that work here that are owners of the business and the distribution of the shareholding is much broader and that's a much more sustainable model for us moving forward. So what was it about employee ownership that at the time when you were exploring those different ways to keep growing, what was it about employee ownership that made you think that that was the right avenue to go down? Well, I suppose you don't want success to become the reason that you fail. And we couldn't see how building success was going to be sustainable from a number of people required point of view, a affordability point of view. There were a lot of aspects there that we realised we were just fundamentally relying on more and more people as the business grew. So it made sense to make sure that those people that were really valuable to the business were treated appropriately and recognised that way. So I suppose, yeah, fundamentally what I'm saying is the business as it has grown has relied on more and more people rather than just the two founding partners that originally started it all. What are some of the the challenges around going employee-owned? I mean, the first thing that springs to mind for me is there's a lot of people that want their opinion heard and how do you still keep the ship moving in the right direction and not having too many people pulling in different directions? Yeah, so that was very challenging and not easy to achieve. We believe we did it very successfully, but yeah, at some point you have to disconnect ownership from management decision-making and board positions and directorships and all those sorts of things. And yeah, that was quite difficult, but we thought long and hard about it. We went through a very strong engagement process to achieve it. We fundamentally had good people without egos sitting around the table, which helps a lot. And we were able to transition from people that had ownership that wanted a say in everything effectively to people that were happy to have ownership and allow those that were most capable to make the decisions on their behalf. Yeah, Not easy, but done relatively successfully and we're much better for it now. 
And feel free to not answer this if this is getting too in-depth or something you can't share. But I mean, is it as simple as employing management or a CEO or a managing director that doesn't have a stake in the company? Like, is that the... No, we have principals. We have an executive group. We have the CEO, COO, CFO, CTO, CPO now, Chief Performance Officer. All of those positions are held by individuals irrespective of their shareholding. It's purely their ability to fulfill the role. That's the priority. And then the shareholding is offered in a controlled way to employees really based on the value they bring to the organisation. And that's not necessarily just seniority or role or title. It's based on longevity, sense of belonging that we quite often talk about that we really value within people a range of criteria there, I suppose, to use to establish whether someone should have some ownership in the business or not. Yeah. One of the things you and I spoke about during the pre-interview, Arthur, and, and one of the things that interests me about you is the fact that you actually run and maintain your own blog, which not a lot of people in the construction industry do. So can you tell us a little bit about why you started that blog? What has kept you so consistent with it? Yeah, it was established initially when I set up my social media accounts for Facebooks and Dins and so forth. And I felt at the time that the business needed me to have a profile, I suppose. I saw the bloggers as an opportunity, a way of doing that. Particularly as we started to grow, I suppose when we were smaller, I used to have much more influence on outcomes day to day as we've grown it's impossible for me to have that same sort of influence. So it was a way of me just communicating externally and somehow linking my own profile to the organisation's profile. But over the years, I've sort of found that that's less and less important now as we've matured as a business. And for me now, it's really just about just giving something back to the industry. And some of my blocks are a bit thought-provoking. Others are quite factual around decisions that we've made and what we've found has worked for us or not. It's really just to share those experiences with others in the industry and hopefully some people find it interesting or gain some learnings from it. And at what point did you kind of feel or notice that it was helping with your communication internally? More recently, the last few years, I've sort of felt that, again, my role constantly changes internally and externally. And as we started using more people internally to communicate with our own people. I felt that this was a way of me maintaining some communication with the group internally. I'm not sure how many of our staff actually read it, to be honest, but it's there for them to read if they wish to. Yeah. When, especially when you start getting into the the realm of hundreds of employees, it's impossible to have a personal communication with all of those people regularly. Whereas with something like a blog, okay, it's not as in person as shaking somebody's hand and sitting down and have a coffee, but it's still a way of exposing maybe new people that come onto the team to your way of thinking and getting some sort of sense for you and your style and the company generally. Yeah, correct. I think there's two levels there. You try to stay as personable as possible. I still spend a bit of time with every new person that joins the organisation. I have two hour or hour and a half long sessions with them. Sometimes they're in groups, sometimes they're individually. So I sort of use that to try and break the ice with those individuals and give them a bit of an explanation around our background and why we are where we are and why we are who we are now. So at a personal level, I still try to maintain that. But then there's fundamental principles and approaches that we maintain as a business. 
And those things are hard to communicate to everyone on a constant basis. So by having a blog there where I can translate some thoughts and ideas to people gives them some background, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it certainly doesn't make up for that personable one-on-one contact. And it gives you that avenue to be consistent with being able to reinforce certain ideas or certain values or whatever it is like that, which I think is really important because saying them on, on initiation day and hoping that it sticks is hard work. But having that consistent blog that consistent touch point every week or every fortnight where you can highlight those things in more depth or whatever it may be is good for sure. Yeah, I just finished an induction actually the other day and I said to the group at the end of it, there was four or five in the room, I said, look, no one's going to remember any of the words that I've said here. and That's okay. I'm not doing this just to waste two or three hours. I'm hoping that I can leave an impression. You won't remember the specific words, but it's the impression that I leave that will hopefully be lasting. Hmm. Not dissimilar to being at kindergarten. You don't tend to remember what you learned at kindergarten, but it's still really important in your development. It's the impression that gets left and the experience that you have that stays with you. And on that topic, experience, one thing that you mentioned to me last week when we were chatting too is that you go around recruiting people and the way you onboard people and offboard people a little bit different than, say, some other companies do. Could you explain to people what you know how it is that you go about that? So many years ago, I read a leadership book The question was raised in the book as to why we put so much effort into saying goodbye to people when they leave your organization, very little effort in welcoming them. So I sort of picked up on that and we changed the way we do things in the office. Typically when people leave, the card goes around and everyone signs the card and take them out for lunch and maybe even buy them a gift. A lot of effort goes into saying goodbye. So we sort of flipped that around and we put an enormous amount of effort into saying hello and welcoming people. So the signatures and the chocolates and so forth are done at the start when they first walk in the door. There's quite a bit of effort put into introducing those new people to the broader group, Mm -hmm. explaining their background, their technical expertise, but also their hobbies, their interests, so that hopefully that builds some connectivity between those new people and people that are already here. And then we put an enormous amount of effort into inducting them and explaining to them the process of how we go about, so our approach to not only our work, but our clients and our projects and our people as well. And ultimately, what we're really trying to achieve is to provide them with the best opportunity possible to have that sense of belonging as quickly as possible. So it's our obligation to try and have them achieve that sense of belonging as quickly as possible. Now, some people get it relatively quickly. Others take a long time. Some never get there. That's fine. You know, we can't be everything to everyone, but we understand the value of having that sense of belonging and having a majority of the group feeling that way and how much of an impact that has on culture. Yeah. So when you change that around and put more emphasis on people's arrival to the company, was there any noticeable changes, anything that you noticed as a result of that? Yeah, definitely. Lots and lots of people have said to us, I've never had that experience before. I've never been so welcomed before. I've never seen an organization as organized in bringing people on. The business cards are there for them the day they start on their desk. Everything's there ready for them. So they have this sense that we're excited to see them, excited to have them as part of us. Yeah. And see, when we were having the pre-interview, I was getting really excited when you were explaining all this stuff because no different than a customer experience when you go to buy something online or whether it's in a shop, 
there's a thing called the employee experience and it sounds like you guys are really nailing that and putting a lot of effort into it and then essentially it's somebody's first impression or part of that first impression of when somebody's Correct. coming on board to a company so if you start at a great point the expectation is that it's going to be good moving forward so i suppose there's that drawback you get if you start on such a high level you've got to be willing to keep up as you go forward but it sounds really good and i think Having people hear how that is impacting the company and impacting how eager they are to get started and, and all the rest of it with the company, I think is really important. Self-fulfilling as well, because once someone experiences that, they want that for the next person. Mm. And in stark contrast, you're nice and kind to people when they leave and they're actually leaving your organisation. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So we, we just kick them out. You know, we don't <laughs> give them anything. No, we don't. We, we say nice things and wish them all their best. Yeah, yeah. So changing gear a little bit, I always like to get people to share their experience and like if they could go back in time. So say if you could go back in time to when you were starting your career and impart some wisdom on another engineer or somebody starting their career that wants to be successful, maybe work their way up into a position similar to yours. What advice would you give them? Look, I think you've got to be really clear about your purpose and also what you define success as we've had some strategic sessions where people have sat there and said, well, I just want to make lots of money hmm. and that's absolutely useless in my mind because the real question is how do you make lots of money hmm. so you've got to be principled i think very clear on your purpose and be very clear about what you define success as and it's obviously not just money once you're clear about what success looks like then everything flows from there obviously yeah and what about some personal attributes that you think people need to work on to be able to work their way up into an organization very low ego mm -hmm. is critical. Humility is pretty important. Having a sense of humor, I think, helps as well. Do you find the ego side of things easier said than done, especially when somebody's trying to work their way up within an organization? Because essentially they're competing with other people to either get that next opportunity or be seen as worthy of that next opportunity. How do you not have an ego but still be competitive at the same time kind of thing? Well, I think if you're good at what you do, then you stand out irrespective of ego. Assuming you need ego to stand out is flawed. Mm. I'm speaking about our own environment, I suppose, yeah. and I've got no doubt there will be many work environments where ego is important mm. and critical, but that's based on how that environment has been established. Yeah, The reality is that people with egos will succeed in certain environments. They just won't succeed in ours. Yeah. Yeah. I think ego, because there's such a bad association with ego in the construction industry, it sort of sometimes immediately gets condemned for having one. But I think it's good to have one as long as you know how to control it and when to shut it off. Like for me, if we were promoting somebody in the civil, in my old man's civil company, if somebody's standing in front of me and is willing to admit that they're wrong, regardless of whether they're competitive or not, to me, that's a good sign that somebody's worthy of going to the next step. Yeah, so maybe that's a bit of humility. So I think in my mind, maybe what you're talking about is excellence. So I 100% promote excellence and being really good at what you do. Mm. People that carry a little bit of humility, I think, can afford to be at their very best. Yeah. And a little bit of humility actually just helps balance out what some people may perceive as arrogance or so forth. Yeah. So sure. no problems being the best at what you do or one of the best, absolutely. But a little bit of humility can sometimes temper that tendency to be a bit arrogant with that hmm. or carry a bit of ego. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything I haven't asked you today that you think our audience might really benefit from? In the pre-discussion you touched on, 
something that people might not know about me or find surprising. I'm actually a, a really strong introvert. So whenever I do the tests, I come out extremely introvert, which lots of people find quite surprising. But based on my role, I suppose, and my title, they assume that I'm very competitive and outwardly going mm. generally. Now, I do have to portray some of that. But outside of work, I'm, I'm very much an introvert. I'm the guy sitting in the corner at the party. Yep. I'm not the one walking around making conversation. So, yeah, I suppose for people that are listening that have a bit of imposter syndrome around themselves being introverts or, or whatever, then it does mean you can't be a strong leader. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that's a great point to make. How can people get in touch with you, learn more about the business and generally reach out if they want to learn more about what you guys are doing and what you're up to? Well, I am very private, so um, I don't want to be inundated. I do get lots of connections on LinkedIn, so people yep. can connect with me through LinkedIn. My blog is, I think, just arthasaltus.com. Yep. So, yeah, you're welcome to read those. There's many topics there. They've been going for many, many years, so a variety of different things there to read. Yeah, and we'll link to both of those. We'll link to your LinkedIn, the company's website, and your blog in the show notes as well, so anybody that's listening that wants to check those out, you can grab them in the show notes. But other than that, I appreciate your time, Arthur. I really appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with me and be an open book about things. So have a great rest of your day and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. I've really appreciated it and really enjoyed it. Thanks, George. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening, and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.